Hey, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Brad Briscoe. I'm the director of bivocational church planting for the North American Mission Board. And today I'm having a conversation uh, with Peyton Jones. I think uh, many of you know Peyton. Peyton's a church planter, uh, content director for Exponential, founder of New Breed Church Planting Network, and uh, author of a new book, Church Plantology, that actually releases today. So we're going to be talking about the book and uh, kind of specifically uh, a theme of uh, church history, the church planting throughout church history. And then also we're joined by Winfield Bevins. Um, Winfield has written numerous books. He had a book, an expo book that came out just last week called uh, Healthy Rhythms for Leaders. And uh, Winfield is the director of church planting at Asbury Theological Seminary. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Welcome, Peyton and Winfield. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here with you. So, Peyton, we want to get started talking about church plantology, and I like the the subtitle of the book is The Art and Science of Planting Churches. So, Peyton, share with us, just to get our conversation started today, um, share some of the background of this book. I mean, I'm just curious, why why a, a textbook? Because really, I think it's considered a textbook for church planting. Yeah. What prompted that? And just give us a little bit of the background. You know, it's funny because when I say this, you're going to laugh because uh, uh, Tim Keller, I am not, but Zondervan uh, did Center Church with Tim Keller. And uh, I had published Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Art, which ironically, pre-COVID-19 was about doing church in public space like the early, early church did. And they didn't have a church planning book. So they were like, hey, you know, we've got Tim Keller. Um, we've got City Church, but that's a manifesto really of urban ministry. What we need and what we lack is just a standard textbook, something that could be used in a university or a seminary or Bible college for a planter, but also something that a church planter could pick off the shelf, not necessarily need to be academically enrolled anywhere and say, I could use that to plant a church. And so they approached me and I my first response was, guys, I'm not qualified to write that kind of book. I don't have a PhD. Uh, you need to get Brad Briscoe and Daniel Yang to write that. And uh, of course, you know, I, I will say it again. I said it with Daniel on, on, on the first interview. Uh, my dream is to write a book with Brad Briscoe and Daniel Yang. So I have half a textbook left over because I wrote double the amount. But uh, since Winfield's here, we're going to throw that in. So four of us writing the next one. Let's do it. You heard it here. Yeah, Let's I'm not it. surprised you wrote two books and they cut it down to one. So I, yeah, that I'm not surprised about. Well, so Peyton, today we're really talking about church planting throughout church history. I just wonder, uh, share that piece of the book. I mean, kind of, can you unpack that theme uh, from, from the book? Yeah, so, you know, just a little bit of background. There are three overlapping circles. Uh, church plantology is a term that I made up uh, because I was really trying to figure out a way we've all seen i know winfield with the courses he teaches and brad you you and i have trained and and worked with planners for years but i know that all three of us have seen where um planners almost sometimes seem to be operating from a from a different playbook and 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 you watch them go out and make the plays and they don't ever win the game and you think man there, there there's a better playbook you know like all those sports movies where they they find the secret playbook i think that's from the water boy that tells you my uh my, my, my emotional intelligence there. But they find the secret playbook uh, and, it, and, and much of it's an ax. And so the principle was, if you find the three overlapping circles where you find scriptural practice, 
best missionary practice globally, stuff that still works all over the world. And, and, if, and if those two overlap and, and it works, and I'm, I'm not being strictly pragmatic here, but it, it'll sound that way for a second. Um, but if, if that were true, if stuff that works today globally, you can also overlap it in scripture, then surely in movements of the spirit throughout church history, you would have found those same principles in action. So where those three circles overlap, that's the history part. That's what I would call a church plantology principle, which means uh, these are principles, not methods. I'm, I've never been into methods. That's where the art comes in. The science is the principle. The art is how you enact that principle on the ground. So church plantology becomes uh, where those three overlap. You can it, 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 what, what it's saying is you can plant among anyone, anywhere, at any time throughout history, past, present, future. These principles would be something that the Holy Spirit laid down for us to be used anywhere among anyone at any time. So yeah, I like that. So, Winfield, I want to come over to you here in just a, a minute. And yeah. just because I know you've done a lot of work in this area and just talk a little bit about those principles that, that Peyton just mentions. You know, where have you seen just really good church planting practices and these principles in church history. But before we do, hey, I want to go back just a minute. Um, you know, a lot of times when we talk to church planters and, and, and people that train uh, in church planting networks, you know, a lot of times they'll talk about uh, church planting in the book of Acts. But man, you just do a great job in the book of really pulling out very practical uh, examples and, and then, I don't know, kind of distilling down some of those principles and one thing I remember in the book, you talk about Paul, you talk about Paul a lot, and especially in the book of Acts, but I like, there were three things, and because you applied this to your life personally, I just wonder if you might be able to unpack this just a little bit. I don't know if you remember this, but there were kind of three uh, examples or principles you pulled from the P Apostle Paul's work. You, you said, number one, Paul infiltrated the marketplace, and you talked a little bit about being bivocational, you know, a barista at Starbucks. You said, second, he often went to public venues where people are already gathering. And then third, and I love this, you said he, he learned to master gospel discussion just because, you know, we all know our contexts are very different today, even they were five years ago, maybe even one year ago as it relates to the pandemic. But I just wonder, can, can you just dig into that just a little bit more? When you think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and those three things, marketplace, pu public venues, and then gospel discussion. Um, what, what ought a church planter today really take from, from those three points? That's really good. You know, one, one of my mentors, I mean, I was, I, I had the benefit of going over to Wales, which is very post-Christian. Um, I always tell people, this is not a wrinkle right there. That's a scar. Um, I went to the rough steelworking uh, town of Port Talbot, ended up being the evangelist in Lloyd-Jones' church. Yes. Got my butt beat, got my head beat into the street. But uh, the, the, the reality is, is that, you know, I, I had a mentor who had, had experienced almost like a local revival. He had been mentored by Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones always emphasized the relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think there's a, a sense in which at times you find yourself doing ministry and you, you, you're aware that God's presence and power is there in a, in a special way. And he experienced that. And I remember he said something because 
when the spirit moved on his church in rugby England, and I, and I got to tell you, he was like super Calvinist, super reform, super, you know, all of a sudden, like, bam, the Holy Spirit just blew out all the stops and it, it, it was localized revival. People were getting saved every single Sunday. And what he began to see was this kind of grassroots. It was the movement of the spirit beyond the Sunday service. And, you know, uh, being able to be mentored by a guy who not only been discipled by Lloyd Jones, but then also had that experience. I'll never forget something he said. It haunted me and then it became reality for me. What he said was, you will meet more people by Monday lunch than I will all week. Mm. And, and that was so powerful to me. Well, 9-11 hit, uh, my support dropped in half as a missionary overseas in Wales. Um, so I had to go work in the factory. Now I had been the evangelist at that church for a year. Within three months, a handful of people have come to faith. I, I did all the risky, all the, all the stuff nobody wants to do, all the what I call the sucky evangelism. We knocked door to door. I preached in the open air. I, we threw dinners with rugby players, shared their testimony. We did all that crap, right? And, and I'm not knocking that. That's, that's great stuff if that's your gift. But none of it worked for me. And so uh, I started getting kind of deprogrammed. So all of a sudden, I'm working in a factory, right? I'm on an assembly line. And I'm reaching all these people with the gospel. And, and more than that, they're reaching each other. Some of the people I went to church with who worked there, it was a steelworking town. They got emboldened, right? Just by my presence there, started sharing the gospel, bringing people to me at lunch. It, it was crazy. But then over the next few years, I started exploring neutral venue because as I was working in the steelworks, people would, would say, well, wait a second. You know, I, I, I'm hearing what you're saying, but I, I'm not going to church. I mean, I I remember one guy said, "I eat prostitutes for lunch. Like that's my steady diet. I, I I can't go sit with those people." And he said they're whiter than white, right? Which meant they're cleaner than clean. And so, you know, uh, over the years, I always had to keep a job. I was a firefighter for about four years, and then I became a barista. Why well, I'd been experimenting with college students, neutral space, and then finally ended up planning accidentally in a Starbucks. Once I did that, it kind of became, okay, I'm really beginning to realize that most of the ministry that Jesus did, the apostles did, and of course, uh, Winfield will, will, will echo this, you know, the stuff that the Methodist movement rediscovered that little part of church history where Wesley was like, all the ministry they did was outside you know, or a Whitfield or whoever it was. I remember they had a conversation and Wesley said, no, that's sinful. Can't go outside. But that started to me to become a real um, eye opener. And I experienced tons of fruit from doing ministry outside the church, um, even gatherings like public gatherings, like COVID-19. People have found public gathering gatherings like uh, we plan in urban Long Beach and it met outside. Um, that, that became huge. But then you mentioned conversation. Sorry, this is a long answer. I'm trying to keep them short here. But um, but when we planted that church in the Starbucks, um, I was a barista there. And Dan Brown Da Vinci Code was like the number one bestseller. And people kept asking me. And I, I had no intention on planting a church. But I threw down a, a discussion group for one night only. I, I didn't want to be a church planner. Didn't want to even be in ministry. That's a whole other story. But... 
ended up throwing this one night only group, 30 Europeans turned up to talk about Jesus. And I thought, man, I couldn't get 30 Europeans in a room to talk about Jesus if I tried. I've been here seven years. That's impossible. Second night, because they begged to do it again, and I reluctantly gave in, 40 people turned up. At the end of that, third night, 50 people turned up. And uh, at the end of that night, this lady said, hey, what if we studied the actual Gospels? And the rest was history. And that became my first church plant. And Pey Peyton, you just did a great job there of using personal examples for, for those three points. I'm surprised you remember the three points <laughs> I just brought up. <laughs> I mean, really, marketplace, you're bivocational, and just the, the, you know, the missiological benefits and actually the missiological necessity, right, to have access to a mission field you wouldn't have otherwise if you're a full-time kind of you know, fully funded planter. So Paul, in, you said Paul infiltrated the marketplace. So your example there, then I love your example about public venue or, you know, meeting somewhere where people are already gathering. I mean, that's happening, like you said, in the midst of the pandemic, but you talk about Starbucks. I mean, you, I, and I've heard you say this before, you accidentally started a church in Starbucks, um, <laughs> that there's a, it's a public venue where people are already gathering. And then your Da Vinci Code example you know, you're mastering, as you said in the book, gospel, Paul mastered gospel discussion as he, you know, reasoned with the Jews concerning Jesus. Um, we have to do that, right? As, as church planters, we have to kind of figure out where, where's the connection uh, between the gospel and the context or the culture that, that God has sent us to. So I just think that's really helpful. So um, for those of you that might be joining us uh, late, we're having a conversation uh, with Winfield Bevins and Peyton Jones around the book uh, Church Plantology, which uh, releases today. It's an exponent in the exponential series. Um, and also, I just want to remind you, if you hear anything these two guys share, you want to ask questions, uh, please do that. You have the ability to throw a question out and we'll try to respond to, to some of those as we wrap things up today. So, so Winfield, let me come to you now. You, you've heard, uh, and I know you're familiar with the book, heard Peyton talk a little bit about um, kind of these principles from Paul, but also we see in church history. I would love to hear from you. Uh, wh what would you add to that, that piece? And in, in, in other words, what, what are some, some good church planting practices that, that you've, you've seen throughout church history that would help to kind of inform uh, the way a church planter is thinking about uh, planting a church today? Yeah, I think that's helpful. I think what I appreciate and kind of share kind of Peyton's heart is, you know, a lot of times the church planning discussions are like, hey, let's let's look forward without looking backwards. And I think I, I think that's kind of the roots of this whole idea of church plantology is like, let's really dig in to see how the early church grew and proliferated. And when you study movements, you see that there are these principles that are somewhat universal, uh, whether you call them principles, characteristics, DNA is, you know, uh, another way to kind of look at it. Uh, throughout the history of the church, we, we didn't just all of a sudden get here. There have been movements that have God has used throughout the ages to bring the gospel to where we are today. And we're at one of those pivotal moments um, in history right now. I mean, a hundred years from now, they're going to look back at this kind of COVID moment. And, you know, I've, I've kind of used the term that this has kind of been a season of disruptive grace, where I think the Lord mm -hmm. is kind of disrupting all of the kind of the, what had become the normal for so much of like church as usual, where God's just stripping all of that and really calling the church back to what I would say, this essential 
uh, DNA, movemental DNA, essential ecclesiology, minimal ecclesiology, if you will. And so I really resonate with so much of uh, what uh, Peyton has done here. Love his heart. Uh, I love the evangelism story, Peyton. We got to talk on, on the side about that. I've, I'm, I'm an evangelist. I, I can tell stories about that as well. Um, but uh, two years ago, I did a research project on, you know, there are movements happening all around the world. And, you know, a lot of what Asbury, the work I do here is working with global movements. A lot of the work in the U.S. is working with kind of Hispanic Latino multiplication movements. Um, but I, be, I began to ask the question, um, you know, what would a movement look like in the Western world? What would it look like if there was a bona fide movement in the United States or Europe? And, um, I, and again, I'm at Asbury, which is a Wesleyan school. And so I really began to dig into the DNA of the early Wesleyan revival. I, I speak in terms of early Wesleyan revival rather than Methodism, because so many people think of modern United Methodist Church and all the stuff that's happening there. Get your heads around early Methodism. And early Methodism was, was a renewal multiplication movement that became the fastest growing movement uh, and one of the greatest documented movements in the Western world. And so, you know, one example is um, between 1800, there were about 64,000 Methodists in the United States. And in 10 years, membership grew to almost 200,000 um, in, in a 10 year time period. Between 1850 and 1905, American Methodists planted, on average, over 700 churches a year. So just imagine this. In the United States, one movement is planting 700 churches a year for 50 years. I want to learn about that. And um, one of the things that I began to see is um, these kind of dynamics or a, a DNA. And you see similarity in this DNA as you look at the early church. Uh, and this is what Peyton was referring to. You see this in the book of Acts. You see this in global movements. You also see this in the early Wesleyan revival. And so that's some things that I look at in Marks of a Movement is kind of what are some of those core kind of principles or DNAs? One of the things you see in movements is an openness to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I, I love, you know, Peyton's not afraid to talk about this. In movements, uh, again, this isn't crazy charismatic. I tell people it's charismatic with the seatbelt. You know, it's, it's being open to uh, kind of what the Lord wants to do in our midst, trusting God, believing God for, you know, a fresh move in our day and time period. Community, um, small micro community at the very heart of the Wesleyan revival were um, these, I, I call them disciple making systems. The genius of, of Wesley was he had the societies, which were like church plants. Um, and then you have the class meetings, which were kind of, uh, they were more robust than what most of us would call a small group. But at the very epicenter were these things called band meetings. And I've been fascinated at recovering these uh, for church planning. As, uh, as you look at movements, there's always this kind of micro macro kind of movements that are happening all at the same time. And so these disciple making systems, getting people in these kind of intimate spaces where they're accountable, they're praying for each other, they're growing together. So there's rapid multiplication that comes out of that as people are experiencing life transformation. And then the other, the other I mean, there's a, a lot, so I'm, uh, I want to keep the focus on Peyton's book. Uh, but you also see throughout movements, historic, past, present, future is this apostolic DNA, where there's the releasing of the body of Christ. 
um, to do the work of, of, of ministry. And so this is where everybody has a mission. Everybody serves a role in, in global movements, historic movements, um, the book of Acts, you see, it's not just the 12 apostles, but the proliferation happens, movement happens as the body of Christ is empowered um, to serve, to lead, and to make disciples. And that, that's how we get to movement. And I think Peyton does a great job here in kind of applying this idea of art and science is kind of getting back to kind of these essential touch points that are universal um, throughout age, time, space, nationality, gender, um, a language, it transcends, you know, these, th this core DNA, this movemental DNA transcends um, time and space, and it's the kingdom. Uh, essentially, we're joining Jesus um, to, to expand the kingdom here on earth. Man, Winfield, we, we could talk the rest of the day of what you just unpacked there. I mean, seriously, I would love to talk about it for the rest of the day. So I'm first telling off, you, I, a book a book needs to come out of, of this call okay, right okay. here. All right. And, and by the way, it. if you guys have not read um, Winfield's exponential book on John Wesley, I have to tell you, it's excellent. I have read that thing a couple of times. Make sure you get that. All right. I'm downloading it as soon as we get off this call. Um, and I'm taking notes, Peyton, for the book. So just so you know. So I love your phrase, disruptive grace. I mean, I do think... Um, you know, the pandemic, I, I also like the way you kind of framed it. It's kind of forced us to peel back kind of down to, you, you call it the essential DNA, or sometimes, you know, we call it a minimal ecclesiology or essential ecclesiology, because I do think that that's one thing that the pandemic, I mean, I talk to leaders all the time that it, one of the things that's revealed is just how centralized our ecclesiology is. I mean, I just, I have conversations over and over again with leaders that say, look, I knew our Sunday gathering was a big deal but I had no idea. It's like everything we did as a church was connected to the Sunday gathering. So yeah, I just really appreciate that. And I appreciate then the, you know, the, and there's more to the DNA you said than these three, but openness to the Holy spirit, some, some sense of a, a micro expression. Uh, there has to be some smaller expression that we, we view as the church. And then third, this apostolic DNA, and man, I think that topic, that, that's a great back, you know, lead us back to the, the a conversation from the book, uh, Peyton, you, you just, I also think you've done a fantastic job because unfortunately in most church planting literature and training, I'm, you know, personally, my personal bias is there's not enough conversation around the fivefold and around APAS and specifically around the apostolic uh, gifting, you know, as it relates to church planting. It's like, if, if we don't talk about the apostolic gifting or you use the language of apostolic DNA, uh, Winfield, it's just church planting is just not, we're not going to see a movement or, or as you said, a movemental DNA. So Peyton, let, can we, let's go back to that for just a minute. I, I loved a, a little phrase that you use in the book with apostolic, you call it apostolic agility. So can you unpack that just a little bit? What, what do you, in the book, what do you mean by apostolic agility? So you, you've, it's funny because you asked me earlier the story behind the book, and I gave you Zondervan's motivation for why they wanted the book published. Okay. Now you're coming to mine. And, <laughs> and so, you know, for me, I would call myself a serial planner. So I'm getting ready to plant again. It'll look different this time, kind of like Paul's third missionary journey that I outlined. He sets up a hub, a planting hub. You and I, Brad, have sat in rooms. I would largely say a lot of this book um, came out of a time you, me, and Christofferson sat in a room with the training team. And we said, we're going to change church planner training forever. 
And I, I, I hear the Sandlot now forever. I don't you know, remember I, saying that. I think you did, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm a little more grandiose than you, Brad. A little more calm, you know, cool as a cucumber. You know, you you play it cool, brother. Uh-huh. But uh, but I, I get out there and, and I'm a little more may, maybe punk rock about it. But you... Uh, you know, Brian Sanders uh, and, and Daniel Yang and I were saying, you got a little more punk rock than you let on. <laughs> but but here's here's the funny thing is that, um, you know, the apostolic agility is Paul's ability to move. And, and so my first book was called Ch- uh, Church Zero, which is about teams. Once you hit that team planning thing and the APEST, you gain the ability to not have to stay right? Uh, Paul moves all these different people around like chess pieces all across the map of the first century Mediterranean uh, theater. And he's mobilizing what he says from Jerusalem to Macedonia, you know, I fulfilled the ministry God gave me. Um, The only reason he's able to say that is because he was thinking in networks. And um, various scholars have said, I mean, from Schnabel to, to Ott to to uh, to N.T. Wright, they've all said he he planted networks. So if you start looking at that, you start seeing the team as a as a big deal. So for me, when I plant, um, I, I I like to say serial planner, um, ninja planner, what, whatever whatever floats your boat. But I plant churches and move on. I'm never staying in one place too long. So because of that. Um, I look at Paul and I see his ability to move. Unfortunately for us, what we've done is we've created a system where we tie our own personal finances to the church that we plant. And then it becomes like an anchor that holds us tethered to that work. Paul had worked out a system. And of course, I know you and I are passionate about bivocational, uh, even even. Um, I use the term trivocational, um, use the term covocational. Um, and, and, and what I do is I, I, I kind of outline like, hey, this is how I've, I've lived over the years. This is how I've been able to move, whether I'm planting a hub or whatever. And sorry about the noise in the background here. I don't know if you can hear the chainsaw and my fire alarm going at the same time. Uh, this right. is a true test church of what planted. we're talking about. Right. Absolutely. Open air ministry. I mean, this is the true test. If, if Wesley could do it with people peeing on him and blowing trumpets, you know, they climb trees and pee on him. I mean, this is nothing. Did you know about that? Yeah, they climbed trees and peed on there him. There was a I'm story gonna, where they released a bull. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, he was on a table and they released a bull. He was right. in the marketplace and it knocked we'll, the we'll table get distracted. Over. We'll get yeah, that's, sorry, that's, sorry. that's another okay. podcast. Hey, that's another hey, podcast. I, I distract myself enough. I don't need any help. <laughs> but uh, but anyways, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's the ability to, to plant and move, to plant and move, to plant and move. And in the book, one of the things that, that we have is uh, the ability to structure your finances in a way that allows that apostolic agility, the the ability to plant and move, plant and move, raise up teams. I talk about the strike team, the team that goes out, talk about the the fist team, the team that stays behind. And this is all another way of of talking about the APES model that um, Alan Hirsch has developed so well, such a huge fan of his. And I know you and I work with him a little bit. But I mean, he's the Einstein, right? I'm I'm the poor man's Alan Hirsch, you know, the the the, the idiot's guide to APES. <laughs> but but Alan is truly the genius of this. Um, but what what I feel this book, it's funny you hit on this because I feel my motivation is that Brad, for you and me and people that think like us, this is our church planning book. 
This is the yeah. book with our framework and it's been long overdue, but this is, this is our DNA um, put forth in a church planning uh, manual or textbook. Yeah. And what you just said there, Peyton ties in, I see a question and this is, this is a perfect timing for this question. I'd love for both of you guys to, to address this question. So here's a question somebody in the audience asked, it says, and this really ties in what, what you just said, I think it says, what are the first, what are the key first steps you believe we need to make the necessary shifts into plant churches in this way? So like, if we're really going to think differently about church planting, if it's going to be informed by the things you write about in the book, what you said, Winfield about kind of this, uh, essential DNA, what, what are the first steps then to plant churches differently like this? So Winfield, would you go ahead? Yeah, would you, would I, you start? So one of the things, so how do we get from one of the fastest growing movements to, um, in less in a, in a generation essentially becomes one of the fastest declining, you know, what happened? And there were three things and I kind of hit this and, you know, uh, Alan, you know, did the, uh, forward to the book he he kind of has a piece on he calls a movement killers mm -hmm. and i think to what peyton was just talking about is um is you have this professionalization so three things happened to early method what killed early methodism one is the professionalization of the clergy and they again they became so close you know, these, these guys were kind of lay preachers. They were apostolic. They were circuit riders. They were riding horses. And then all of a sudden they're wearing robes and they're, you know, become highly educated. Um, they went to seminary. Don't, don't tell anybody I work at a seminary. So. Uh, but one is the professionalization of the clergy. Um, and I think this is where the Bivo, Tribo, whatever, whatever you want to call it is, I think the future, we have to think about what are alternative income streams to, you know, tent making ministry. This is stuff that Paul was doing. And this is the stuff, the majority world church planning, these guys aren't getting paid to do it. They're doing it out of an apostolic impulse. We've got to get back to that. Um, Roland Allen, for instance, was a high church guy who believed in ordination. He just didn't believe in paying people to do ministry. So that's a whole side conversation. One is professionalization. Two is Methodists went from preaching and open doors, as Peyton just said, to building buildings. There's actual documentation in the eight, late 1800s. They shifted from the storefronts, from kind of open air, to all of a sudden they're building these fancy little mini cathedrals. And now um, streets all across the Southeast are littered with these empty little Methodist buildings that have fancy stained glass, but nobody's in them. So professionalization, you got the shift from the body to buildings. If you want to make the shift, you got to move from the building back to the body of Christ. This, this is the earth. What is the early church define? What does the Bible say the, the church is getting back to kind of a biblical ecclesiology, getting back to everybody being a member in ministry. The third thing that happened to the Methodists to be a Methodist was to be a member of a class meeting and you had to have a class meeting ticket. Uh, it was a quarterly ticket. I've got one over here in my office that's from the 1840s that's signed by a class meeting leader. What happens is um, in, the, in the early 1900s, they cut the class meeting. So what had defined a Methodist was not um, attending worship on a Sunday morning, but it was were you a part of a class meeting midweek? In other words, a discipleship group. When they cut the class meeting, it was like the final nail in the coffin. So they gave up on discipleship. 
they shifted from the body to, you know, kind of professionalized clergy, and then they shifted from the body to buildings. So if you want to make that shift, shift away from the building back to the body of Christ, shift away from a hierarchical professionalized clergy to every member as a minister, and then thirdly, move from programs back to discipleship. So those would be the three kind of essential shifts I would say we have to make historically. That's fantastic. Yeah. Great. Excellent. Three points. Uh, What he said, Brad, what he said. (laughs) 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 Well, and then, man, I love that. I, I, the only little piece I would add, I think is like, because I, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of existing congregations that are trying to make those shifts that you just mentioned, Winfield, that I'm convinced uh, one of the keys to do that is to help people in the church uh, have a paradigm shift around what I would call the nature and essence of the church. So right now, when people think of the nature and essence of the church, or when they think of what is the church, we either view the church as a place where certain things happen. So it's like, oh, well, the church is that place I go to over there one day a week at a certain time of the day to do these things. Or even worse than that, most people in North America today, they view the church as a vendor of religious goods and services. So it's like, I go there to consume of religious goods and services. So I'm convinced that until we uh, really have a shift in the way we understand the nature and essence of the church, that the church is actually a called and sent people of God, that, you know, that, that paradigm shift then starts to, to shift to see that, oh, no, wait, I'm actually a, a sent missionary person. So then that, that plays into, you know, it begins to blow up the clergy lady divide that you talk about. Uh, and then the venue, oh my goodness. I mean, and we, when we begin to see God's actually sent us yeah. into the places we live and work and hang out. So I just, that's, for me, that's a paradigm shift that most people, you know, we have such a deeply held assumption about church that until that shifts, we won't be in a position to move into those realms that you just described. Yeah, Man, I it, love that. In North America, we really have, an extremely anemic ecclesiology. And mm. um, th- it's, it's, um, it's one of the banes of evangelicalism, to be honest with you. It's one of the products. One of, I mean, there's a historic, I mean, I could do a lot of stuff around this. Yeah, I love what you just said there, though. Say, but, say that again. <laughs> um, I, I don't even know that I can. About the ecclesiology. I mean, say it again. Say it yeah, again. We, we, yeah, there's a, we, there's a dearth of ecclesiology in North America, and we need to rediscover. And I think that's it. I think you just you, you summed it up that we've got to, pastors need to study. Like, I just finished a piece on ecclesiology for a new book, and it was actually really, I did a historic over starting with kind of like what Peyton does go back to the Bible. We need a biblical ecclesiology. Then you can look at ecclesiology throughout the ages and you see how do we get so jacked up in North America? Wow. There's a historic trajectory of this. What's the answer? Get back um, to kind of this biblical ecclesiology. The church is the people of God, not a building. And if op- open up any dictionary and one of the first definitions that pops up, Google it, of what is church, it will say a building will be one of the, yeah. one of the first things. The Bible yeah. speaks of it in terms of organic, um, uh, uh, you know, um, terminology. We're the body. Um, we are, uh, you know, the hands and the feet. We're brothers and sisters. Christ is the head. We, you know, this, we're the habitation of the Holy Spirit. There are these organic terms, and we've got to get back to that. Yeah, that's yeah. excellent. So, I, hey, I hey, love let, that. So I, this ties back to something you say, and then we got a really good question I want to ask both of you again. But can I let me go back? Because I remember what Winfield just said. 
I think you reference as it relates specifically to church planting when in the book, and I thought this was really helpful. You make a distinction between church planting and church starting. So can, can you explain to the audience what, what you mean and why you felt like it was important to make a distinction between those two phrases? Yes. Um, so, you know, church planting is when you sow the seed of the gospel and you make disciples, you do the Great Commission. And church planting in the laws of cause and effect is the effect. It's not the cause. Um, church starting is where you put the church out front and cart before the horse and you say, I'm going to start a church. You go get your website, you go rent a building, you go get your sexy logo, um, you know, you, you do all your branding and the, the church itself as an entity is your focus rather than proclaiming Christ. And I, I, I really spent a lot of time in the beginning of the book, really kind of, it just it's, it's only a few pages, but kind of saying Paul's main ministry was to proclaim Christ. And once you see that, you go, oh, so that led to everything else. I just was working with um, uh, Bible League International a little bit, and um, they're in all these different countries. Now, they translate discipleship tools all around the world, and they take a servant posture with these other nations. They mentioned the fact that, you know, when we were talking, they said, you know, we're not we're not a church planning organization. We're a translation organization of discipleship tools. That's our mission. But Peyton, we've ended up because people are just discipling nonstop. It's a discipleship movement. Churches are being planted. We've had to get into the church planning game. And that's why we were chatting as they said, hey, would you would you join in with us on this? But the reality is that the, the, the horse is in front of the cart. And so kind of the, the difference is Paul sows the seed of the gospel. He makes disciples. It's Jesus focused and it is people focused. It's not church focused. We get that wrong. And when people try to magically do a pop-up church and it doesn't work, it might be the best church no one ever comes to, but it's still the best church no one ever comes to. Oh, I got a train thrown in there uh, yeah. uh, for good measure. But but one of the things that, that we really found in that Starbucks, and this is where it goes back to the genius of what Winfield is saying about you know, Wesley and the bands and the societies. You, you have to understand, I came from the reformed church tradition. So it was always, hey, uh, you know, taste great, less filling. I'm always gonna pick Whitfield because he was in my tradition, right? They were the two warring during that time. Over the years, I came to really appreciate where Whitfield said, I built a rope of sand. You know, he was comparing himself to Wesley. And he says, my followers are, are, are a rope of sand. I didn't architect anything like Wesley did. Wesley put those systems in. One of the things I argue in the, in the book is that Paul did the same. He was an architect of these incredible networks and systems that if we pay attention to, we might just harness and recapture some of that genius. If Paul was only a preacher of the gospel, he would never have been able to say what he said in Romans 15. So for me, you know, this this poor missionary kid kind of on the field, uh, actively doing all of this stuff on the ground that's completely accidental, I find myself not only discovering in the scripture, but also all of a sudden looking at Wesley with new eyes going, oh my gosh, this guy's uh, orthopraxy uh, is is mind-blowing. He is the closest thing in the West that we've ever seen to the Apostle Paul. And that started my romance with Wesley, which is why Winfield was one of my my top choices for a, for a guest on here because he gets it. 
He writes about this. He's an expert on it. But we started doing these, these groups that were like missional. It didn't matter if we had Halo tournament parties. I've talked about this a million times other, uh, elsewhere, elsewhere. But I guess what I'm trying to communicate here is even our church services were small groups. We sat in half circles and people had discussions and people heard the gospel from people in their group. You know, you would you would worship, you would have a sermon, all that normal stuff. But then you would have what uh, Wesley had in these societies. You would have these these little experience meetings where people were using their gifts and talking and praying for one another. And discipleship and evangelism was happening. Every believer in these church plants was being discipled. Then in the in the group or in the in the week where people were doing this out in the real world, whether running cooking classes or, you know, doing uh, 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 film clubs, you know, where they critique movies they like with, with you know, people that don't know the Lord, they, they already were equipped for ministry and stuff just kind of went on fire. And that's that to me is what I think the genius of what Wesley was doing. He was equipping everyday believers. That's what happened in Jerusalem, where the church went up in the persecution and Antioch popped up. Church planning happened by accident. It happened as a result of something else that was happening. And so that to me is how we're gonna see that shift is when we, ironically in a church planning book, we get our eyes off church planning and stop, stop making it an idol and get back to what Jesus told us to do. Church planning will take care of itself. Church planting rather than church starting. Starting. Yeah, I didn't really answer the question. Oh, yeah, I guess no, you I did. did. No, you did. I think that's I'd, good. Winter, like yeah, what would you add? add? Yeah, yeah, I'd please. like to add just a really kind of, you know, uh, just real short definition. You know, church planning is, um, it's, a, it's evangelism in community. I mean, really, if we think about it, this is, we're doing this in community. And it starts out of the small groups. It starts with the micro. Um, and it's not about building a church, you know, as, as Paint said, it's not about the building. It's not about getting to the launch. It's about planting uh, the community of faith and doing it. And I like that idea of evangelism and community. And is it, this isn't the Lone Ranger evangelist. This gets into right. like the, um, the George Hunter Celtic wave evangelism. Right. One of the things I've been pressing into is like two of the great historic examples are early Methodism and Celtic um, the Celtic missionary movement, Chunter gets into, he says, they didn't plant churches, they planted monastic communities. Mm. Um, Ian Bradley refers to it as, he says that they planted villages of the kingdom. And so rather than just, hey, we're going to plant a church building, we're going to do this. No, these were micro communities that were immersed in, in you know, again, in the coffee house. I think that translated in today's context they went into the marketplace and they planted in small little villages and a village is like an ecosystem. And I think that needs to be more integrated into our vision of holistic models of church planting is how do we do this in a way that actually um, gets into the culture and the culture actually in a positive way um, speaks into the church. The church becomes a contextual expression. So that's where the community of faith really is absolutely essential to this thing. Gosh, again, so much you said there. I love, I, I love villages of the kingdom, or that reminds me of a little old book by Howard Snyder. Remember communities of the kingdom. Um, so Howard Snyder, I'll just throw this out there is 
He's my mentor. I walk with oh. him on Mondays. He's no 80. way. That book is amazing. And I, I sent him a note. I mean, I don't know. He I probably can, won't I can get a book signed. I, uh, okay. I, <laughs> I, I read and used that book. That, I yeah. tell you the it, principles and I, that book's yeah. probably, I don't even know. Community 30 years old. Yeah, yeah. It's totally got an eighties cover on it's it. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Listen, he is and the it, man. Go out and get how any of his books, liberating yeah. the church, community, of the king, yeah, community of the king that's what oh i was thinking of gosh. yes yep yeah right, fantastic I'll, I'll and i love also ecosystem i mean i think yep. that's a very helpful word to think about yeah that, that needs to be an ecosystem so uh one little comment and then i want to ask a question um and kind of a little more of a present-day vernacular the way i'll say it sometimes is i'll say we need to help our church planters think less like pastors starting a sunday morning worship service and more like a missionary engaging their context Yes. So a planter, they just, they have to start Absolutely. with missionary behaviors and activities and we can get to the Sunday gathering. We just have to be very careful not to start with the Sunday gathering. So, so to go back to uh, a little bit of the bivocational conversation, uh, and you, you mentioned uh, earlier, Peyton, here's a fantastic, very practical question. And I think I'll bet we've all heard this question more than once. It says, to be honest, how can you make a living working at Starbucks? In other words, what about us who went to a Christian school, has, have school bills, has a ministry degree that really doesn't mean much in the, in the real world? It's like, how do you do this uh, as a bivocational, co-vocational, tri-vocational leader if all of your training and background has been ministry? What, what would you say to, to that, Peyton? And I know you've written a good bit on this. Is, is, yeah. What does that look like for somebody today? Hopefully, this is one of the things that the book really contribute to the conversation. One of the things that I point out is is Paul was, um, he worked with his hands when the mission suited it. Everything was driven by mission. So Paul at times had support. At times, the church uh, paid his gospel workers. We, we don't know for sure whether Paul was was paid by a local church on the ground. We know that he advocated for Timothy to be. So um, it, it appeared to be whatever the mission suited. Like, for example, when Paul was in uh, Corinth, he's working with his hands um, for 18 months with Priscilla and Aquila. Um, he kind of hooks up with them. They're entrepreneurs. They have a tent building empire, as we see later, as they have homes and Corinth and Rome and Ephesus. Um, they're present in all these major church planning hubs. And one of the theories that I postulate in the book is that um, Paul's 32 named fellow workers, um, that he's moving all over the map. Those are just the ones he names, um, that those are most likely being franchise, they're franchising Priscilla and Aquila's tent making business. They've worked alongside Paul because when it shows that Paul gets driven out on his second missionary journey, um, he gets beaten pretty severely. And it's like he, he, he goes to Corinth to rest up from his wounds and possibly some psychological damage if you, if you read NT right. Um, and as he's there for 18 months, it's the first time he's really stayed put for a long period of time, um, it's then that he meets Priscilla and Aquila. And, and when, it, when Timothy and his partners come and rejoin Paul, it says that it freed him up to preach the gospel. So obviously he's working with his hands, he's, he's uh, working uh, to support himself, but then when his coworkers come, they fill that gap for him. They start making the money and he's freed up. So Paul had this ability to switch it up 
when the mission dictated. So after his R&R, he gets back into it. One of the things that I, you know, there's the passage in 2 Corinthians, uh, there's the passage in Philippians 4, there's a couple other places where Paul is actually saying, I need your help to send me on on my way. Romans 16 uh, or 15, he tells him, I need your help to send me on. So at times Paul's collecting money from the churches he planted, he is at times collecting support. So over the years, to, to answer your question about, hey man, how do you how do you make it as a barista? Well, let's put it this way: I didn't make a lot as a barista. And one of the things that I that I bring up in the book is I've got this um, this kind of scale that I use, which you can see it there. It's 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 not too fancy. Yeah, it's very um, helpful but, though. But I've 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 done this before with bar graphs, um, particularly in some of the training videos that I've done. Um, the uh, I'm always looking at things like uh, three factors. Um, how much time is this going to cost me? Or, or the way I'll put it fancy is how much time is it going to take me? How much money is it going to make me? And then lastly, how much exposure is it going to give me to my target community? So let's say I'm a forklift driver and I make pretty good money um, and it's a full-time job. I'm, I'm, I'm with a union. You know, it's pretty good. It's not they're looking after me. It's making me some good money. But I'm stuck in the back of a warehouse exposed to three other people in that warehouse. That's not really a great church planning job. Um, like when I was a barista, I made terrible money. So the the, the bar graph, you know, whoop, my, my, my income was way down here. It was terrible. I was making minimum wage. I had benefits, so it was kind of cool. Um, but then uh, the amount of time I was working a 40-hour job right? Uh, I was married. I was adopting a baby. So that's not ideal, really, right? It didn't free me up that much uh, to do some of the other stuff I had to do. But then the exposure it gave to my community was amazing. I mean, I literally planted that church, like I said, accidentally out of a Starbucks. You can't, you can't shake a stick at that. But then I went from there to become a window cleaner. My church planning partner was a window cleaner. That was the best job I ever had. Here's why. I worked two days a week as a window cleaner. I made double, even sometimes triple, depending on how fast I went, the money I made at Starbucks, two days a week. But I knocked on every single door in my city. I had an excuse and a reason to literally go to every single house. And I lost a ton of weight doing doing that job too. So so you have to weigh those three factors, you know, which is time, money, and exposure to your target community. Yeah, I think that's helped. Very practical. Yeah, you know, and and rarely will we find a, a job in the marketplace where all three of those are like off the chart, right? We're going to have to balance. I mean, it'd be great if you do. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I think that's rare, a helpful. Brad. And and you know, I think it's also in it just to go back to the question this one person asked is I do believe we're in a, a bit of an in-between time. I mean, I think if we keep pushing the conversation bivocational, co-vocational, you know, to younger generations, youth group, collegiate ministries, more and more people will realize that regardless of what God's called them to do in the marketplace, uh, you know, they're in full-time ministry and we can help them see that, Hey, you can be the, the, the greatest architect and you can actually start something at the same time that they don't have to choose one or the other. But I think we're in an in-between time where there's a lot of church leaders that their only education and background is ministry. They're realizing the benefits of being bivocational or maybe out of necessity, they're going to have to move to bivocational. And they're trying to decide, well, gosh, what kind of job you know, lends itself to church planting? And I think that what you just said, Peyton, is very helpful. Well, 
can you make a lot of money doing it? Can you do it in a short amount of time? Or do you have a lot of relational connections? And it's like, you know, kind of balance those three things as you're considering. So, so yeah, Winfield, I, I just go ahead, Pete. And I do want to point out, like Brad has done amazing work on this. Um, he's written a book uh, on it's called co-vocational church planning. Definitely check that out. Brad, Brad does really good work on this. And, and I love the fact that Brad has legitimized uh, the majority of us of church planners out there who were co-vocational. I consider myself a co-vocational planner. I don't, I don't want to be full-time supported by a church probably ever again. And, and here's what we do, right? Like we'll grab onto something that we see in the scripture and we'll say, that's the only way. Like, like with the house church movement, um, people are really tempted to just grab onto that and negate all other forms of church. Well, Wesley didn't. Wesley advocated both and, and I'm a both and guy. I'm like, hey, I'm going to have a central gathering, kind of like Brian Sanders, and I'm going to have micro churches. Um, but it, it's, it's both and to me. It's house to house and temple courts. The same with this. I would not knock anybody who said, I'm going to be set apart. It was Hugh Halter who, um, and I know you don't, Brad. It was Hugh Halter who said, the only reason you ought to be, in his book, Bivo, the, the only reason you ought to be set apart um, full-time is to reproduce yourself because that's the biblical model. When he said that, something clicked in me. Uh, to me, I think he's right. I think when you're set apart, you better be reproducing yourself yeah. if you're going to be in that. So everything you're doing when you're set apart to full-time vocational ministry, you have somebody with you that you're training at all times like Jesus did, like Paul did. Otherwise, get out there because like my mentor said, you're going to be exposed to so many people that way uh, out there. And, and, and both people need you. People within the church need you to take them with and people uh, outside the church need you to go to them. Winfield, what would you add well, to that? Yeah, I mean, to build on that, I mean, you really nailed it. Um, I'll, I'll brag a little bit. The other person that I've got here is Robert Coleman, is literally three minutes from campus. So I, take, I take him to lunch. I mean, master plan of evangelism is exactly that. I'm like, jelly. Right. We're not, we're not, I'm an ordained minister and I work with, I think, what I would distinguish some of what I'm doing, and I would love a separate conversation with you all. This would be an interesting other kind of webinars. How do you do that within historic denominational frameworks? So that's a lot of what I'm doing. I've worked with, I'm, I, I just got off the call with, you know, someone in Norway, a Lutheran in Norway. I'm working in kind of post-European, you know, post-Christendom context in Europe. I'm on the Center for Church Planning and Growth Multiplication in England. Um, and so back to this idea is if you're, this was Wesley, Wesley was an ordained minister. What he was advocating for though, was he saw that there needed to, he wasn't arguing to do away with ordained ministry. He saw his kind of calling was to release the body of Christ. Early Methodism, this is a George Hunter refers to this, was a lay apostolic order. In other words, it was an order of lay people that were called to be released for mission and multiplication. And so it's not an either or. And I, I do really resonate with that. I see there needs to be a paradigm shift for those who are in ordained ministry to see themselves not as the top of a, of a, of a pyramid, but rather the bottom of the pyramid. We need to reinvert the leadership paradigm to where leaders, denomination, you know, network, uh, bishops, whatever, are at the bottom. And our calling is to release the body of Christ to do the work of ministry. Um, and, and then also that's a paradigm shift too for um, 
existing congregations. So one of the things we did, Brad, was uh, when we had planted on the Outer Banks, I'm, I'm an artist. And so as, as we grew our church, how we grew our church, it was I launched a nonprofit art gallery. So it was kind of the both end. It was living in these kind of in, be- in between spaces. I actually, you know, we live in the middle of what's called the gig economy. And this will really resonate with emerging young adult populations is the future of just life in the Western world is you're going to have side gigs. And I think church planters, maybe you draw some income from the church, but the future of even church ministries, you got to have a side gig. And I think that is, that's what Wesley did. Wesley became a multimillionaire by modern standards because he engaged the printing press. And he was an extremely successful entrepreneur because he had a printing business and he gave everything away to ministry. He said, hey, if I die with a shilling in my pocket, I'll have robbed God. And he, truthfully, he, he died, he gave everything to the Lord and to the poor. And so that's where I think church planners got to think like entrepreneurs. How do we engage culture context? How do we start side gigs? Yeah. And so, you know, start art galleries, start coffee houses. How do we get in the marketplace? It's, it's a shift in thinking. And it's not the either or. I think that's right. the other thing. For that's those really that are like... Point how do we make this shift? Does it mean I got to scrap everything? Right. My, you know, the last plan I came out of, um, we launched, you know, the last, I mean, I could mention all the nonprofits that we launched, but the last thing was called mission thrift. You know, we, we had this aha moment because churches do, um, yard sales, right? We, we thrive on those things, you know, use, use that nonprofit status. People give away their junk. We sell it. Well, this last yard sale we had, I was like, man, what if we opened a thrift store and gave the money to mission? And that was kind of the last big thing. We gave tens of thousands of dollars every year to local community organizations through this thrift store and allowed us to interact with people in the community and, and kind of collaborative spaces. So I think it's not the either yeah. or, but it's thinking entrepreneurially. How do we make that shift? Begin to start thinking like an artist. I think the church, I'll end on this note. We got to engage. Who are the artists in the congregation? Who are the innovators? And how can we get them on the team to help us dream about how to reach our communities for Christ? Yeah, I think it's really important. And you said it a couple of times, Winfield, is this isn't an either or, it's a both and, right? It definitely isn't an either or. Although I would say in an increasing missionary context that we all live, we have to think more outside the walls of the church without a doubt. Um, well, I, man, we're out of time. I, I hope this was helpful to others and enjoyable. I know it was to me. So, yeah, yes. And then also remember, uh, Winfield's got a book that came out just last week, Healthy Rhythms for Leaders, that's also in the Exponential Series. So, uh, man, appreciate both of you guys. Really uh, enjoyed the conversation. I wish we had time to get to some other questions, but uh, maybe we need to do this again. And, yeah, uh, and I we, was going to say, for those of you um, that, that are asking, you're uh, apparently you're demanding another webinar with us three. So I'm at, let's get the band together. Let's get them back together. Run a hey, mission for God. I love it. All right. Let's, let's <laughs> do it. Bye. Hey, well, if, if, you get the, if you get the book today, just so you know, it's normally 36 bucks um, because today's launch day is $20. So that's huge. Wow. It's nearly 500 pages. It's a textbook. There's it's a reason massive. there's that big sticker yeah. price. It's hardback, man. And it's hardback. Yeah. Yes. How often do you get a bones. hardback book nowadays, Cha-ching. right? <laughs> Look at that. All right. Well, appreciate the time, guys. Hope this was helpful for everybody. And uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime soon. Hey, thanks so much. Enjoyed it. Congratulations on new book, Peyton. Thanks, brothers.